we're getting to the end of, of a series of conversations where we're talking about how to relate to God. How do we relate to God? So we're going to talk about a critically important topic this morning. We're going to, we're going to talk about worship. And we're going to revolve our entire conversation around the idea that I am not helpfully relating to God unless I'm worshiping Him gladly. I'm not helpfully relating to God if I'm not worshiping Him gladly. Let's pray. Father, thanks so much for what you've done in our lives. And we see a piece of that this morning in dedicating children. We hear that in the conversations that we have with one another. You put us in a place where we can love and be loved, where we can do meaningful work, where we can try to honor you with our lives. And then beyond that, you have blessed us immeasurably. We have, Lord... Uh, the food that we need, we have a place to sleep. It's dry and warm. And Lord, you've blessed us with a connection to you. And more than anything else, we thank you for that. Hear our prayer. And I pray today, Lord, that you would speak and that you would inspire in us hearts of worship. In the strong name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. I am not helpfully relating to God if I am not worshiping him gladly. I'm not helpfully relating to God if I'm not worshiping him gladly. So let me explain that by way of analogy. I, I am not relating helpfully to Diane, my wife, if I'm not treating her with tenderness. This past week was Valentine's Day, which is also... Diane's birthday. So if I miss Valentine's Day, it's colossal in my household. And so during Valentine's Day, there is an opportunity for me to, I've never done this before, but I, had, I often get Diane flowers, but I had flowers delivered this year to her elementary school, which cost me about $7,000. <laughs> and they delivered a dozen roses to Diane in the office and the office was full of a whole two groups, two full classes of women teachers. And so I got enough points to last me for the next six years. <laughs> the roses came in and the entire chorus of women in the office, oh, who's that for? And Diane, of course, is receiving them. Yes, who's it for? And he says, Diane Allen. Well, of course, I was a hero. I am not healthily relating to Diane, if I'm not treating her with tenderness, if there are not opportunities to squeeze her hand or to touch her as I walk by or to tell her that she looks beautiful. And I want to do those things because my heart, I love her. And for me to not do those things means there's a block. I'm not healthily relating to Diane if I'm not acting toward her with tenderness. Consider this idea in the larger context of how we relate to God. If, look, if you have a connection to God, and, and I know many of your stories, and I know that most of you do, if you have a connection to God, then you know about worship. Worship is not new to you. What may be new to you is the addition of the word gladly. But gladness is at the heart of worship. In fact, the Bible tells us repeatedly to rejoice in the Lord. We're ordered to rejoice in the Lord. And in the same way, we are commanded to delight in him. Again, by analogy, if I spend time with Diane, but I do it begrudgingly or out of duty, she will not feel loved. I will not be relating to her healthily. If there is no gladness in my worship, I have a connection problem. If there's no gladness in my worship, I may not really know God. Not really. I may have done religion, but I may not know God. But that may not be the case. It may be that I do know God, but maybe simply that I've let my relationship go, grow cold from lack of attention. Or it may be that I've had a long series of difficulties and haven't handled those difficulties well. Or it may be I just haven't had time yet to recover and regain my balance after a period of difficulty. But... If there's no gladness in my worship, then I am not 
healthfully relating to God. We're going to emphasize that even further in a second, but before we do, I want to read something for us this morning that will just launch us into this topic. So in John chapter 4, Jesus has one of the most fascinating exchanges of his entire ministry. He meets a woman who is a Samaritan, and we don't have time this morning to explain this fully, and I'm going to preach again from this passage in just a few weeks during Lent. It's just one of my favorite passages in the scripture, she's, but let's just say culturally she's an outlier. And uh, Jesus has an incredible conversation with her, during which at least two or three times she tries to manipulate Jesus out of the direction that he's going. And a couple of times he just follows her and still ends up stunning her. But I want to read you the critical part for us this morning because at the core of this exchange, Jesus actually talks with this woman about worship. So listen to what he says, John chapter 4, beginning of verse 19. Ah, sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews proclaim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. This is just fascinating. She brings this up at this point in this conversation, but Jesus decides to go with her. And he says this, Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when we will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for, for salvation is from the Jews. So he makes an actual theological statement there. I won't bother to explain that, but again, we will in a couple of weeks. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. So without question, Jesus wants to teach us a lesson about worship here. So what does he teach us? Well, if we unwrap this and apply it to our context, in effect, Jesus is saying that the critical thing about worship is not the mechanics. The critical thing is not how we adjust the lights. The critical thing about worship is not music volume or the way we do prayer or communion. It's not like the Episcopal church you grew up in or the whatever. Nor is the critical thing about location. It's not about a school auditorium versus a church sanctuary. The critical thing about worship is that it engages the whole mind and the whole heart. Spirit and truth, Jesus says. By this, Jesus means the whole inner person, the full range of our emotions and our active understanding, our heart and our reason, the place where I feel God and the place where I know things about God are all fully engaged with God. So let's begin with the heart. How meaningless if I, on Valentine's Day, say to Diane, I love you. Or Diane comes in the door after school and I say this, love you. How meaningless. This means very little to Diane. So with God, worship is not worship if the heart is not fully engaged. I am not helpfully relating to God if I am not worshiping him with gladness. It's interesting that Jesus seems to have frequently quoted Isaiah 29, 13 to make the point, listen to this, that it is entirely possible to worship in vain. It is possible if you occasionally feel that you're driving down the highway tossing up a prayer to God on your way to pick somebody up or on your way to work and you feel like there's absolutely no connection whatsoever, you might be right. It's entirely possible to set your alarm and wake up and get here on Sunday morning and occupy your little blue seat and have it mean absolutely nothing. It's impossible to worship God in vain. If our hearts are not engaged, then the form of worship means nothing. Matthew 15, 8 and 9, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And because of that, they worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. In other words, it's possible to worship God in vain, to worship God in a way that's not really worship. Remember how Jesus summarized the entire law, and some of you know this. He was asked at one point, you know, what's the greatest commandment? And I can't believe it still. Jesus answered that question. He ventured into that weird rabbinical debate, and he said, okay, 
Love the Lord your God. Not do your duty. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. He added, love your neighbor as yourself. And then he said something that's mind-blowing. He says the entire law can be summarized in that. So there you go. Not just most important, guys. The entire thing can be summarized in that. I am not healthily relating to God if I am not gladly worshiping him. My heart will be fully engaged. Let me add one other note about this. Among other things, this means, interestingly, this is a sidebar, but this means, interestingly, that worship is an end in itself. And let me explain what I mean by reading from a great author, Dr. John Piper, says this in a chapter about worship, in one of his books, Piper says this. Now, what does this imply, what he's just said, about the feast of worship? Surprisingly, it implies that worship is an end in itself. And some of you come from the kinds of spiritual contexts. This is sometimes the case in liturgical contexts, like a Catholic church or Episcopal church. Sometimes it's true of more charismatic, extremely demonstrative churches. They'll talk a lot about worship, and I've heard this teaching before with benefit. But they'll talk about worship and what worship does for you. You know, it gives you joy, and worship will set you free. Someone like Jordan will stand up and say, let's worship the Lord, jump up and down, praise the Lord, because it will set you free. Piper makes the point that worship is not about joy. Worship is an end in itself, He says, that's surprising, and it is surprising to me, so let's follow him. I love his argument. We do not eat the feast of worship as a means to anything else. If what transforms outward ritual into authentic worship is the quickening of the heart's affections, then true worship cannot be performed as a means to some other experience. Feelings are not like that. Genuine feelings of the heart cannot be manufactured as a stepping stone to something else. That's interesting, isn't it? Listen. For example, my brother-in-law called me long distance in 1974 to tell me my mother had just been killed. I recall his breaking voice as I took the phone from my wife. Johnny, this is Bob. Good buddy, I've got bad news. Your mother and dad were in a serious bus accident. Your mom didn't make it. And your dad is hurt badly. One thing is for sure, Piper says. When I hear news like that, I do not sit down and say, now to what end do I feel grief? As I pull my baby son off of my leg and hand him to my wife and walk to the bedroom to be alone, I do not say, what good end can I accomplish if I cry for the next half hour? The feeling of grief is an end in itself as far as my conscious motivation is concerned. It is there spontaneously. It is not performed as a means to anything else. It is not consciously willed. It is not decided upon. It comes from deep within, from a place beneath the conscious will. It will, no doubt, have many byproducts, most of them good. But that is utterly beside the point as I kneel by my bed and weep. The feeling is there bursting out of my heart, and it is an end in itself, and that's what feelings are. I'm not helpfully relating to God if I'm not worshiping him with gladness. It also engages our head. Worship engages our heart fully, but that's not all. It's absolutely critical that we're worshiping the right thing. It's critical that we think rightly about God as we worship him. Along with a fully engaged heart, we must have a fully engaged understanding. You know, The Bible speaks as much about idolatry as any other topic. And idolatry at its core is to think wrongly about God. In writing about worship, Richard Foster, first he quotes the great A.W. Tozer, and then he comments on what A.W. Tozer has said. I want you to listen to Tozer and then Richard Foster, just a couple of sentences. Foster says this, A.W. Tozer says, the essence of worship is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. Let's say the Tozer thing again. The essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. And then Foster comments, 
To think rightly about God is, in an important sense, to have everything right. To think wrongly about God is, in an important sense, to have everything wrong. As Jesus told the Samaritan woman, truth matters. It's not enough to be sincere. And that's the mantra of our culture today. Doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. It's not enough to be sincere. It's not even enough to be happy and sincere because I can be sincerely wrong. You can also be wrong about what you are worshiping. So it's absolutely critical to think rightly about God in order to worship him. And many of our problems, in fact, in worship and in life are the result of wrong thinking about God. God's trying to punish me. God doesn't really care about me. God can't help me with this problem. And when we think wrongly about God, that impacts our worship of him. It impacts our relating to him. Real worship engages the mind and the reason. Some of you have heard me talk about this before, but before Diane and I and the boys moved to Northern Virginia, we lived in the Boston area, and I pastored an urban church in, in the Boston area, in a really poor section of Boston. And we were there for 13 years. God blessed us wonderfully, including two fantastic kids and one tag-along. Jordan, I'll let you figure out which is which later. And during that time, one of the things that just animated my ministry is I had a prayer group with a group of pastors in the Boston area who were also pastoring in similar neighborhoods and similar kinds of churches. And over a very short period of time, that prayer group evolved into a weekly meeting, two hours of prayer. We didn't get together and talk about our churches. We didn't get together and relate. We got together, and at 10 o'clock on Tuesday morning, we hit our knees and started praying. And we cried out to God for two hours for the city of Boston every week. I never missed it. It, it made my week. It built my heart for God. Many, if not most, of these guys were from worship expressions that were far more dramatic and dynamic than our worship environment at Gateway, for instance. There's nothing right or wrong about that. It's just they were. So this was a very animated worship experience. It was also a rich experience. It was two hours of shouting and crying and running around, and it was great. The prayer experience involved anywhere from probably 7 to 25 pastors, depending on the day and the season, and we did this for years, maybe as many as seven years. During the time of this prayer experience, some of you have been around Christian circles long enough to remember this. There was a church just outside of Toronto, Canada, that was experiencing an explosive revival. They invited a special speaker to come speak at their church for a few nights, and God did such dramatic things, according to the people who are in this environment, that they asked him to stay an extra week, and then another week, and then another week, and this turned into months. There was a period of time where Time Magazine did a cover story on the Toronto Vineyard. The church was called Vineyard. The denomination was a vineyard. It's just outside of Toronto. I was told that there was a time when flights in and out of Toronto, entire airplanes were full of people from all over the world who were coming to Toronto to visit the Toronto Vineyard because of the incredible and dramatic things that God was doing. There were people being knocked out by the Holy Spirit. There were people just radically changed. There were stories about people who were changed when they walked into the building. God's presence would be so powerful and so palpable, they would be instantly changed. There were also some other things that were happening. They were one of the manifestations of this revival is that people were experiencing animal noises, literally. So some in the crowd would roar like a lion. Some in the crowd would baa like a lamb, or uh, there were people who, I, I'm not joking, would act like chickens or dogs. And there were other fairly dramatic manifestations of this revival. So my group of pastor friends decided that we were going to take an exploratory trip to the Toronto Vineyard in Canada. So a group of about eight or ten of us decided that we were going to go to Canada for a few days and experience the revival in, the, in Toronto. And because something happened with our children, I was unable to go. So 
I didn't get to go to Toronto, but the rest of this group did. So they go to Toronto, and one of the guys who pastored a Baptist church in downtown Boston, an historic Baptist church, who was not one of the more Pentecostal people in our prayer group, uh, he goes to Toronto, and he experiences what was called at that point the Toronto Blessing. And for him, as it was for many people who experienced the Toronto Blessing, it was just what he would describe as an overwhelming sense of the joy of the Lord. And he would laugh uncontrollably, uncontrollably, for long periods of time, 15, 20 minutes, just be filled with the joy of the Lord. He stands up on Sunday morning at Ruggles Baptist Church in Boston, Massachusetts, and he starts to preach, and he can't preach because he gets overwhelmed with laughter. He has to sit down, overwhelmed by the joy of the Lord. He had invited another of our pastor friends, their church met on Sunday evening, to come just in case this happened so he could get up in front of his congregation, the other pastor, and explain what God was doing. So he did. As he did so, a couple of his elders walked out, and it split the church. I'm sorry, this doesn't have a happy ending. (laughs) Well, this is a very weird story to tell, Ed. So the next Tuesday, we go to prayer. And one of the guys that we prayed with that I loved, I loved this guy. He's one of the most unique followers of Christ I've ever known. He led a church that was extremely Pentecostal from an extremely Pentecostal tradition. It was a very dramatic, (laughs) dynamic, uh, you know, if they erred in a direction, they certainly erred in the direction of gladness, but maybe not always informed gladness, let's say. And yet, this guy had a PhD from Harvard in history. He was brilliant. He's now left the Boston area. He's, he's the head of a seminary in Eastern Europe. So we go in Tuesday for prayer, and Tuesday prayer, one of the rare times that ever happened was really not prayer so much as it was just kind of discussion about what had happened and what God had done. So at some point after this discussion is over, I tug Eric on the arm and I said, I don't care what you're doing. We're going out to lunch. Eric says, okay. So Eric and I go out to lunch. We sit down and I say, what? Would you explain to me what this means? What happened in Toronto? What did you experience? I'm placing myself at your feet, Eric. What did you experience? What is this? And he said something. I've said it before here at Gateway, but I'll I'll never forget the sum total of it. He said, you know, Ed, he went. He said, you know, Ed, from my experience... About 25% of what went on was genuinely God's spirit moving. About 75% of it is just people getting over-animated by their emotions and getting carried away. And of course, my response was, being the godly, holy guy I am, my response was, I knew it! I knew it! I knew it! It's a bunch of wackiness. And then, profoundly, Eric said, yeah, it's a bunch of wackiness, but honestly, I think when we gather together in our regular worship services, about 10% of it is really God. About 90% of it is us just trying. I was duly chastened. So then, humbly, I said, okay, well, Eric, that is not my experience, and three or four times during our number of years praying together, we would have six or eight or ten, sometimes churches would have joint worship services together. And a number of those joint worship services, I led worship. We had actually had a worship experience coming up that was a joint worship experience, and I was going to lead worship for a number of these churches gathering together, a number of the pastors who had gone and experienced the Toronto blessing. And I said, Eric, I can't lead that. And Eric said, no, Ed, that's where you're wrong. 
That's where we need you. Because somebody's got to lead. Somebody's got to be engaged. Somebody's got to bring understanding and order to what's happening. Because real worship involves the heart and the head. Man, I understood it then like I never understood it before. Real worship engages the whole inner person. The mind and the reason and the heart and the emotion. So, let's pause for dramatic effect. Which is harder for you? I mean it. I'm, I'm not just getting a drink of water. If we were in a different setting, I might have you turn toward one another and answer. Let's real quickly, we're going to do some more worship here in a minute. Let's answer three questions about this before we stop, and I'm going to do this quickly. Number one, where does this kind of worship come from? How does this happen? How does what Jesus is talking about here happen? Where does it come from? Well, if we do a survey of God's story, here's what we come up with. Number one, when people experience God for who he is, that experience drives them to confession. So I'm not going to give a full explanation here, but just just look at Isaiah 6 sometime. Uh, Isaiah gets into God's presence, and he doesn't dance and shout and sing. When he sees God, Isaiah falls on his face, and he says, Woe is me! I am undone! I am completely split apart! I don't even know who I am! I'm not worthy to be in your presence! How could it be anything else? When God's people experience God for who he is, that experience drives them to confession. Secondly, when people experience God for who he is, that experience motivates them to offer themselves. I'm yours. That's exactly what the disciples do. They get in front of Jesus, they encounter God's movement, and they say, let me follow you. I'm yours. They offer themselves to him, and that's what happens in worship. There's a notable Old Testament exception, isn't there? And that exception ends up proving the rule because Jonah, some of you know the story of Jonah. God calls him. He doesn't want to go. Jonah runs, and God's bigger than he is, and the hound of heaven finds Jonah and redirects him. And in the end, Jonah relents, and he offers himself to God to accomplish God's purposes. He's completely redirected. Thirdly, when people see God for who he is, that experience launches them into praise. There are just countless biblical examples of this. I think of the time when the children of Israel come to the Red Sea. They're complaining again. Why would you drag us all the way out here so that we would be killed? Moses, Charlton Heston, holds up his staff, and the sea divides, and they walk across, and then the Egyptians come in. The sea overwhelms them, and you know what they do? They sing. They can't help it. Moses writes out an entire chapter because the people just burst into song. God, you're great. You're awesome. You've divided the sea, swallowed them up. How awesome are you, God? Because when people see God for who he is, that experience launches them into praise. Have you ever seen, those of you who are basketball fans, have you ever watched the NBA slam dunk contest? You know what happens when somebody does something inhuman? They'll show the dunk real quickly, and then they'll go to the, they'll go to the fans. Because people in the stands are going, oh, oh, you can't help it. There is a physical reaction. And when people see God for who he is, it launches us into praise. This is the essence of biblical worship. And it comes from encountering him. It comes from seeing him for who he is. This is also the essence of what it means to have a relationship with God. It means to worship him. I am not helpfully relating to God if I am not worshiping him gladly. How do we worship him like this? I don't have time to explain this, but there are lots of prescriptions. I thought this week about taking a principle from an odd place. In Romans chapter 6, the Apostle Paul is not talking about worship at all. He's talking about holiness and how you live a life of holiness because we struggle with that. We have desires that we know aren't right. We follow them anyway. How do we not do that? And so Paul, first of all, he addresses their head. He says, look, don't you know that there's an old you, an old way of doing things that sought its own self, and that way of doing things was crucified with Jesus on the cross. That's dead. So he says in the middle of that chapter, so now I want you to consider yourself, I want you to think about yourself as dead. I want you to consider yourself dead. And here's what I want you to do. I don't want you to offer any more. Don't offer practically in your everyday life, don't offer the parts of yourself, your mind, your imagination, your heart, your your body, don't offer it to 
desires that you know do not honor God because that leads to debt. That leads to a bad place. Instead, offer all that you have of yourself. Offer it to God as an instrument of righteousness. So in other words, literally, don't use your reason or your creativity to satisfy your greed and your envy, trying to pursue how much money I can make and planning your bank account. Instead, offer it to honor God. Don't offer the parts of your body, the parts of your body and your imagination to lust. Instead, offer those to God. Think of him. Think of ways to imagine him in your life. This is how we do it. We use ourselves for his purposes and to honor him. Finally, what does this kind of worship actually look like? And that's the easy part. The biblical word most often used for worship means bow down, to humble ourselves before, in effect saying, you're God, I'm not. According to the Bible, it involves singing and praying and dancing and playing musical instruments and speaking truth about God and silence and confession and profession and more. And we use those kinds of things here at Gateway. We don't do much dancing because we don't do it very well. If you want to dance some Sunday, please do. Try to do it skillfully. If you can't do it skillfully, do it in the back. (laughs) When we're together here at Gateway, it most often looks like singing and praying and speaking truth about God. So I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And we're going to end with lab time. We're going to try to worship. So let's pray. Father, we want to see you this morning to experience you so that we would be brought to confession, so that we would be launched into praise, so we would offer ourselves to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so Eva, if you would, let's bring the house lights down for a minute. Let's uh, create a place where we can be alone and pray. All of us together and alone. That's what's great about corporate worship. So I want you to spend a minute asking God, don't snooze on this. Let's use this time. Spend a minute asking God, you know, God, how are we relating? And am I a head person or a heart person? And why? So I want you to spend a minute and engage with God. Okay, let's stand together. Okay, I want you to just get comfortable. Now, I want you to think about how in the next minutes you can use your body to worship Him. So, for some of you, you need to do this. You need to do it as a reminder. This is about you. And for others of you, Dwayne was talking about this the other night. For others of you, you need to do this. It's a way of receiving from him, but also just symbolically offering yourself to him, your body to him. So I want you to get comfortable with your bodies for a minute, and let's sing a couple of songs together as a way of engaging him. I'm going to come back up after this first song and talk us into the second one. But I want you to do your best this morning to connect with him. Now, let's face it, you're not like freakishly overwhelmed with gladness. So what we do is we offer the gladness that we have to him because it's in there. We engage it. And we also ask him, is there something blocking it, God? Is there something blocking me and something blocking us? Let's talk. Uh, So use the words, use the music, and try to ignore as much as you can the people around you. And let's engage him.
Okay, I want you to sit down for a second. Don't disconnect. The book of Revelation is full of a number of passages that describe worship in heaven. And one of the most epic and one of the most theologically rich comes in Revelation chapter 5. And I want to use this as a way to inform this last song that we sing. It's a song we've done a handful of times. If you don't know it, it's easy to catch on to, and I want them to sing it until we got it. But in Revelation 5, John sees a scroll in the right hand of the one sitting on the throne, God the Father. The, the scroll symbolizes, you know, in part, God's sovereign plan and his plan for us and his plan for the world, and it's all written out. And then John, there's a little desperation in John's voice, and John says, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. 
I wept and wept, John says, because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or to look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. God's great warrior and our hero, the lion, Jesus, who accomplished everything that separates us from God, he took it and devoured it and overcame it. And here's the cool part. So John goes to look at the lion, and this is what happens. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. This is the great mystery that you and I worship. The great mystery is that, that God's great lion, the one who has overcome every evil and every obstacle also, also was the lamb that took upon himself the sins of the world. This was what was so shocking and so scandalous about Jesus. They would have gotten it if Jesus had come and started a revolution against Rome, but he didn't. Jesus had a very different revolution in mind. It was a revolution that would overcome sin, death, and the devil. And he took all of that on himself and died for us. So what we're gonna do now is we're gonna stand together again and we're gonna worship the lion and the Lamb. So let's stand together and sing.
Okay, so let's do some business right now. I have had wonderful worship experiences before, worshiping in uh, Korean settings. And often in Korean settings, when they have a time of corporate prayer, they will all pray out loud. <laughs> so I know that we're embarrassed to do that, but we're going to do it anyway. So I want you to pray. You can pray softly. You can just whisper. But I want you to pray, and I want you to pray out loud. And I want you to call this morning on whichever one you need. Some of you need a lion this morning to fight your battle. I want you to pray to the lion this morning. I want you to ask him to come roar and to fight your battle. And some of you need a lamb, a hero, who will take the things that are dividing you from your spouse or from your friends and will reconnect you, will reconnect you to God, will, will fill your heart with gladness and will lay himself down for you. So I want you to go to him this morning Whichever one you need, because it's both. I want you to cry out to him this morning and, and pray to him. We'll come back in in a second, and I want you to sing with us. But right now, I want you to pray. Do business. Don't waste this time. So let's go to the Lord in prayer right now. But remember that worship doesn't stop within these walls that as we leave this room, uh, we're continuing to worship throughout the week. So go in peace.
Thank mm-hmm. you.